we're here. Hello. Hello. Welcome Hi, to all. Monday Generational Change. I'm Peter. I'm Jen. And the Queen is officially buried. I, I wasn't even thinking about that today. Yeah, I know, I know. But I was just so caught up and I was watching a lady that I had a crush on <clears> for a long time, Nora O'Donnell. I'm telling you, there's like not like a genuine bone in her body now that she's a big shot on CBS. It was the most amazing event of my lifetime. I really? don't even that know was... who that is. Nora O'Donnell used to do, um, I don't remember exactly what it was that she did, but... You know, she just came on there and was like, oh, my God, it was the most amazing event of my lifetime. I got to see the queen buried and everyone made a big deal about it. I'm like, mm, yeah, I don't know about that one. Uh, people die every day. Lots of them. that the queen is dead. Long live the queen. Or hail the queen. No, save God save the queen. I don't do any of that. Well, I will tell you, uh, apparently... Uh, Harry and Meghan were not invited <laughs> to the funeral. Well, Harry went, but Meghan didn't. Harry went to the funeral. He was he he went without her. Oh, Same. people care about that drama crap. I, I really, I really, it's don't. totally useless. But I'll tell you what I do care about, Jen, which I'm sure you care about as well. Uh, the environment is in a lot of trouble. Oh, it's a problem. We're literally watching an environmental hellscape right now. Like it's it, all parts. I mean. A third of Pakistan is underwater. I don't think that's we could have, cra- like, I don't think people understand. And really, I don't think we could have picked a better time to have Kendra come on to talk about, especially what just happened in Puerto Rico. Uh, I mean, the island is like submerged, guys. Like, you can't go anywhere. So much stuff is underwater. Well, they never, they were never even made whole from the last hurricane. Correct. So this is, I, I, people, we need to move to higher ground. We need to change how we use energy. And that's well, that, but if we're in South Florida, it's too late for us people. We really have like maybe 20 years and we really need to hit higher ground. I'm not kidding. There's not going to be drinking water here. So, you know, people need to have an escape plan or seriously scuba certification. <laughs> because this is not, you know, a lot of places are dealing with climate change at different levels and it's going to be a spectrum. And the places, obviously, at low sea level are not going to be like those are going to be the worst places. So it's going to be everywhere is going to have issues. But being underwater is 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 not just an issue. It's kind of a deal breaker. Yeah, I definitely want to be able to live above water. Um, You know, I'm a mountain person. Don't look at me. I'm a mountain person stuck in a beach town. So, you know. Yeah. For how much longer, I guess? Well, a few years. A few years. We'll see. So without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome a guest that we were really looking forward to talking to. Obviously, it's been a long time coming. She was a fantastic guest on John Stewart's podcast. And now we have the opportunity to speak with somebody who is a climate reporter, is with the Gimlet now, uh, was with the New York Times, and knows a thing or two about this climate catastrophe, which is happening on the daily, see uh, Puerto Rico. And I'm sure there'll be something else to talk about in not too long a day. And the most amazing part about what happened in Puerto Rico, that was about a Category 1, one and a half hurricane. Imagine if a Category 4 or 5 I mean, five even if it, but see, people are not understanding that it, the categories don't really matter anymore because they just sit and hover and you get deluge. So it's really not just a windstorm problem. I mean, yeah, we're playing Russian roulette every year. That's how I feel living here. Yeah, every year play I'm playing Russian roulette. That's how it feels. Well, that's the problem with Florida. We're just kind of cut off from <sighs> the rest of the world. But now we are pleased to welcome for the first time and hopefully not the last time, Kendra Pierre-Lewis. Welcome to Generational Change. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. Uh, yeah, same here. Thank you for coming. So there's no shortage of climate crisis topics. Like you can't, nobody can avoid this anymore, right? I mean, like this is in everybody's face in one way or another. And I mean, we're just at such a point now where I think that we've been so propagandized to believe that there's this individual component to this. This is something that is very frustrating. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't recycle and try to drive hybrid cars, but I feel like we can't Tesla our way out of this. And that is, that is something that I notice, and especially amongst, um, you know, higher socioeconomic people, oh, I'll just buy an electric car and that'll, that'll solve it. Um, can, you can you talk about like the misconception of the personal responsibility versus what really needs to happen globally? Yeah, so um, I think the United States in particular is a very individualistic society. And we have this conception that if there's a problem that we can individualize our way out of it. I just made that word up. It's kind of late for me. <laughs> um, and a really good example of how that doesn't work is the pandemic, right? Like if you wear a mask, but nobody else does, that helps you somewhat, but it doesn't fully solve the problem. Like we've been making social, we've been making individual decisions when really we need to be making society-wide decisions. And that's true with climate change too. So like, yes, you should drive less, you should walk or take mass transit or ride a bicycle more. There are things that you should do, but if you are living in a subdivision that has no sidewalks and, you know, has like cars speeding by, the, the ability for you to make those changes is greatly diminished, right? So both on, an, in, like both it's often doing the right thing is making some kind of big social sacrifice because we've set up our society to default to doing the wrong thing. And so if we want people to do the right thing, we need to change those underlying systems. And that's a lot about what we talk about in How to Save the Planet, which is a show that I work on with Gimlet, is we'd like to focus on systemic solutions, not individual solutions. Right. I mean, it's just in when I think about how big of a problem this is and I think, OK, let's say we all just started driving electric cars. OK, well. That's great, but our grids are still based on fossil fuel for the most part. I mean, we have some that are less than others. And then the bigger issue is as long as our military is still like doing what they're doing and big agra is still doing what it's doing, I feel like there is really not a whole lot individual difference we're going to make. Yeah, it's actually the issue is sort of bigger than that. Um, so using the example of electric vehicles, people like them, I think, because we're, so, we're such a car-dependent society, it feels like an easy one-for-one -one switch, especially as the batteries get better on EVs. But California, for example, they've recognized that like EVs alone are not going to help them meet their climate goals. There are still greenhouse gas emissions associated with the construction and the use of, or mostly the construction of electric vehicles. And so really, we need people out of all cars. It doesn't mean we need people never driving. It means we need people making fewer of their of their trips by car of all stripes and more of their trips by alternative methods, whether that's mass transit, whether that's cycling, whether that's walking. It also means that like we need to save those EVs for, for sort of the bigger things, right? Like, does it make more sense for you and I to drive everywhere or for the postal service to drive everywhere, right? Like we want to get our mail delivered. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we need to be having conversations as a society and sort of rethinking how, how and where we live, basically. Yeah, I always say that. I think that 
people are under this sort of misconception that we can solve this problem by just transitioning to renewable energy and yet still be able to consume and live at the level that we're living. And I just don't think that that's possible. However, I am also of the mindset that we should all be wanting to live in smaller, sustainable communities that don't rely as heavily on fossil fuels for getting our food and all. Like, I think that there's alternatives that we need to start pursuing, like at a community level um, that would help significantly. Yeah, I think you, you've touched on something kind of really important, which is there are which is at our current level of consumption, most of us are not necessarily that happy and or our level of consumption, there's a lot of waste in that system, right? So like I live in New York City, I rent an apartment and my apartment is fueled by natural gas. I turn on one, um, it's radiators. I turn on one because if I turn on more than one, I have to open my windows. So my apartment is overheated. It's not underheated, it's right, overheated. Right. If if my landlord were to switch to heat pumps or to P-Tax, I could have a much more comfortable for me apartment and still use less energy, right? So like there's this other aspect of it, which is we sort of assume that having to pivot automatically means sacrifice. And oftentimes what it means is having pivoting means right-sized, which means that instead of over-consuming certain things, we, we are consuming an adequate amount to sustain us and to sustain our well-being and to sustain the well-being of the planet. Right. There's so much waste. I mean, that's that's the key thing. Like that we overuse um, if you look at it aggregate, you know, obviously there's, you know, class distinction and hemisphere distinctions right. in terms of like environmental, like the justice aspects. And that's the worst part for me is that I know that all of the, you know, us as the richest country is doing the most damage, but the people that are suffering the most are the people in the poorest countries. Yeah. And so I should, I should hedge and say that generally when I'm talking, I'm talking about people in the U S. Um, so I'm not making, uh, blanket statements about people who are living in the global South or people who are living in countries that just consume way less than we do. Yeah. I think it's very important that we talk about what did happen uh, with Hurricane Fiona and mm -hmm. the way that these storms, whether they're super storms or just storms that have an overabundance of climate elements that are now completely yeah. decimating the planet. Um, the sad reality is that our corporate media is going to sweep what happened in Puerto Rico under the rug because it's obvious that what has happened there is of catastrophic proportions and something that is only going to change if we change systemically. And that is something that our corporate media, who is funded by the very foundational institutions that have caused these types of disasters, don't want to have happen. What does Hurricane Fiona say to you regarding where we are right now and what we absolutely need to do? Yeah, so I'm going to be fully transparent. I've been keeping up with Hurricane um, Fiona, but I've been heads down in another story, so it's not one that I've been following like with every detail, but I can say sort of broadly speaking, what's happening in Puerto Rico falls into two buckets. There's one that has to deal with the electric grid and what they have done or not done in the five years post uh, Maria. Yes, Maria. And then there's the other bucket, which is the nature of Fiona itself. Um, I can't really speak much to the grid aspect of um, what happened in Puerto Rico. I haven't been following that as closely, but what happened with Fiona is kind of what you were alluding to earlier, which is that 
when we talk about category one, two, three, four, five of a hurricane, we're generally, all that tells you is the wind speed, but that most dangerous part of a hurricane or a tropical storm is the water. Um, the National Weather Service actually has a slogan, which is hide from wind, meaning if you're not in a trailer, if you're in a relatively sturdy structure, it is better for you to shelter in place than it is for you to like seek out in the middle of the storm, but you run from water. So like, <laughs> You need to evacuate if they're, they're talking storm surge, if, if you know you're in a flood zone and they're talking stream rain event. What happened with Fiona is I believe it dumped 44 straight hours of rain on the island of Puerto Rico. And that is a trend that we're seeing increasingly. Actually, the strongest parallel that you can think of is Hurricane Harvey. People think a lot about Hurricane Harvey because I believe at one point it was a Cat 5, but that's not what made um, Hurricane Harvey right. so, so devastating. What made Hurricane Harvey so devastating was a storm just didn't move. And that's what we're also seeing with Fiona. And that is a pattern that climate scientists are saying has a strong climate signal. These storms that linger and linger and linger, and these storms that linger are the most devastating because that water is now being concentrated in a narrow area. Yeah. And of course, we're seeing that because of the temperature change. We're seeing yes. them move slower. So it's we're watching this in live time because I am a second generation native Floridian and I've been mm -hmm. through a few hurricanes. I was in Hurricane Andrew. I've been through a few of them. And people don't understand like old school people like me. They look and oh, we never anything less than a category three. We didn't, people didn't even put their shutters up. Like we we're like old school and it's just not like that anymore. I mean, now it, a category one, it doesn't even need to be a, a hurricane. Look what yeah. happened in New Jersey with that Sandy, Superstorm Sandy. It wasn't even a hurricane. Yeah. And so you end up with these like weird contortions of people labeling storms like Superstorm or, or things because often, or Irene happened uh, in Vermont and parts of Northern, um, you know, upstate New York, uh, 11 years ago this fall, Sandy's 10 years ago this fall, um, Irene was 11. And they, they go through these contortions because the storms are sometimes not even tropical storms. By the time they make landfall, I believe Sandy was technically an extra tropical cyclone, which is a mouthful. And I understand why people don't want to throw that out casually. Um, I, I, I live through it. So <laughs> where, where, in, where were you when Sandy hit? I was uh, Monmouth County, New Jersey. Okay. I was in Queens. Mm. Yeah, we both took it really bad. So that was, I mean, what I, I didn't, um, I actually oh, feel, yeah. uh, weirdly guilty. Um, I, my biggest Sandy tragedies, I, I lost cable for two weeks. I lost internet for two weeks. Uh, we were without power for two weeks. We had a, uh, we relocated to Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, it was tough. Um, a lot of people, you know, um, I'm working on a story now and, um, you know, there are people who it's 10 years after Sandy and they're still in debt from the repairs that they had to make from Sandy. So we, that's the other thing is that we don't talk about is that increasingly, uh, Lake Charles is a really good example is that the frequency that these, or even Murray, even Puerto Rico right now, the frequency with which these catastrophic storms are hitting is compressing in some places. And so that means you often haven't fully recovered from the last storm before the next right. storm hits. Um, and then we're layering in, um, we're often layering catastrophes now, which is also, a new, I mean, I feel like I'm just being a total bummer, <laughs> which, you know, we're kind of like everything that we're living through right now, it's, it's helpful to bear in mind that we're also living through it um, on top of a global pandemic, right? So like we're layering catastrophes, we're layering disasters, and that makes it harder and harder for us to respond to them effectively. Speaking of Lake Charles, you know, one of the things uh, when it comes to having real responsibility about what's going on right now regarding mm -hmm. climate catastrophe, um, the map of Louisiana looks mm -hmm. nothing like the one that they still want us to believe exists. There is yeah. a significant portion of the landmass that is now underwater. And to me, 
it's 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 crimes against humanity is what it is. They're deliberately allowing this to continue, whatever their motivation may be. Obviously, mm-hmm. ninety nine times out of a hundred, it's for profit. Nothing more. Nothing yeah. So there's a really good story I think that came out in 2013 um, called How Louisiana Lost Its Boot. Um, I think you can Google for it. Um, and that story talks a lot about how a lot of some of it is climate change, and I don't want to minimize sea level rise, but it's this interplay. And this is, I guess, the overlapping catastrophes. It's this interplay of climate change and a lot of the ways in which the lands, the the wetlands, and the ecology and the geology, the, the yeah, the landscape of Louisiana has been changed for oil and gas. So there's like um, water that used to be allowed to flow more freely and that would refill some of the wetlands with sediments and that sediment is now getting trapped behind levees and dams and things that are designed to help keep the water out of communities for flooding purposes. So it's actually quite complex. Of course, the paradox is that the sea level is rising on the one hand and, and the oil and gas companies that have constructed all of these, this complex infrastructure that in, is in part driving the loss of land in another way is also making sea level rise worse. So it's this over, it's this like the Ouroboros, it's like the snake eating the tail. These are the systems that are feeding each other. Yeah. Friend of the show, Michael Pan, and Mm -hmm. he he, uh, happens to be a member of the black community. How do we explain climate change to African-Americans who have a lot on their plate? They are focused on fighting for a black agenda, such as reparations. You know, there is something to be said for having, you know, it's like in our political system, we have all of these holes that we have to plug all at once. And it's like people can't slow down, you know, whether it's paying bills, health care, issues with racial justice, climate, well, obviously climate justice, but all these things that are sort of intermingled within a system that, frankly, it does seem like our system is kind of breaking at the seams at this point. Uh, But how do we really get people to focus on this? It seems that, yeah, people recognize that the climate issue is significant, but not enough to, I mean, even Bill Maher did a freaking thing the other day where he's like, if you knew that if you stopped using a cell phone that you could absolutely stop runaway climate change, would you stop using it? And his answer was, yeah, I, I, I get how bad is climate change going to be? Well, that's the problem. You know, like that's the attitude. That's the attitude. How do, how do you see it? Um, so I would say that if you're that black and brown communities are some of the most affected com- communities, not only of um, climate change, but also of pollution. And there's a really big re- win recently in southern Louisiana and the Gulf Coast where they blocked um, the Formosa plastic plant from being um, created. And those were local activists on the grounds from communities of color. And so I think the reality is that many many black and brown people already have that message. What they don't have is money. They're not getting the kind of attention and the funding that national organizations get. And so it's really a question of giving the people who are doing the work on the ground, the resources they need to do that work even better. More so than awakening people, I think. That's right. That's like the issue with people not covering the water problems in Flint and Jackson. And you have our friend Jordan Sheraton, and he's like one of like a couple of people that have really been pursuing this and trying to get justice for these people. And what freaks me out is that I have this, you know, thought for every rat you see, there's 50 you don't. So, you know, we know about those two places in particular, Oh, but there's so many. There's so many. And nobody is really it's if you don't find out about it, you just we just assume that that's not a problem. And it is. It's crumbling infrastructure everywhere. Yeah. And a huge part of that is also the erosion of national of local media. Right. So there have been studies that show that um, as 
uh, as towns and as communities lose their local newspapers, um, the government gets less efficient. There's more corruption because there's nobody to keep, there's no watchdogs. There's no eyes on the ground to keep people knowing. And then there's this other thing that doesn't get talked about enough, which is in many cases, local news can act as a feeder for national news, right? Especially because so much national news is based in New York and DC. And so you don't necessarily have a lot of reporters on the ground. And that's particularly true, I think, of the Southeast, of places like um, Alabama and Mississippi. There just aren't as many local newsrooms and there are definitely not as many national reporters. And so it's much easier for those, and we can talk about the historic reasons why, but it is much easier for those regions and those communities to get overlooked. Um, I I was actually just talking to my coworker about this because we were talking about reporting ideas and she mentioned somewhere really like lovely in the South Pacific. And I was like, oh yeah, I wanted to do something adjacent to that. But you know, I wanted to talk to people in Oklahoma. And I looked at her and I was like, you're talking about coming in the South Pacific and I'm talking about Oklahoma. And I was like, this is how I ended up in Duluth. Like <laughs> I never I never kind of pitched the like <laughs> let's You were in somewhere. Duluth? I was in Duluth. I didn't live that? there. I went out to Duluth for a story. Oh, but okay. I was joking just sort of more broadly that like, because, because I'm so aware of these like gaps in coverage, this is how I always end up in places that like people are like, wait, why were you there? Like, <laughs> I'm never, like, I never go to Paris for a story. Um, <laughs> Duluth was actually lovely. Um, they have great breweries. So I'm not complaining too much, but like. <laughs> That's just not, it's not as sexy of a location as one might want to go to. But, you know, what do you expect when you do climate reporting? You know, you're not going to go to like, nobody's doing climate reporting from the beautiful places. It's like, no, you have to show this is what the migration is going to look like. This is what a refugee crisis look like. Like you're going to places that are suffering from climate crisis, right? I mean, isn't that sort of the point? Yeah. And I mean, the reality is, is that um, lots of places are suffering from the climate crisis. It's a global problem. Um, one of the areas that I think we don't actually talk about enough, um, Abram Lustig at ProPublica just did a huge story um, about, I believe, Bermuda, but we, I don't think we talk about the Caribbean enough in part because I think it lives in people's imagination as sort of a vacation destination and not as a place where people actually live, perhaps with the exception of Puerto Rico, but we don't talk about Puerto Rico enough. We don't talk about the historical relationship and how weird it is between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And as much inattention as Puerto Rico gets, I think the U.S. Virgin Islands gets even less. You know, there are all of these areas that are technically under um, that are technically a part of the U- U.S. and we don't talk about them. Like, when was the last time you really saw a story about Guam? Right. No, they're all sort of neglected places. But, you know, we see that in South Florida. You know, there's so many um, islanders here. There are so many people that live here now from Haiti and Jamaica and, and the Bahamas and all the, you know, all of those places. So we get a different kind of perspective where we are. But I think most people don't don't see that. Like here, there's restaurants from all those places. Like here, there's there you get that. And so we hear about things, but no, it's not something that's covered. Nobody talks about the people there. And I don't think people understand that they don't get a vote. Like the people in Puerto Rico don't they don't get a vote. Unless they emigrate to the mainland. Yep. Right. So how do you see the type of infrastructure change that needs to happen in order to potentially avert you know, as bad a disaster as you could probably imagine. I mean, you know, I'm a huge proponent of high-speed rail. I think that that could definitely help. I think that conversion of biofuel and hemp uh, to replace, uh, you know, gasoline and cars and especially airplanes could definitely make a huge difference. Um, How do you see 
the way that things ultimately need to unfold if we are going to significantly reduce our carbon footprint. And be yeah. So, it, you know, those things that you laid out, obviously we need more solar, we need more wind, we need better storage for those technologies, but and we need to shift how we think about homes. But honestly, I think the biggest thing that we need to change is we need to change. And this is, I think, one of the things that we didn't change during COVID is I think we need to change the way we think about like life for lack of a better word like this push i think after covid to return to normal even though we learned that there were so many things we actually didn't need to have to travel for and everyone's pushed to like constantly get back on that grind it was really puzzling to me i found covid horrific in like nine thousand different ways but one of the things that i really appreciated about early covid was that it forced us to slow down in really important ways and i think that that's something else that we really need to think about i think we don't just need to think about the technology shifts that we need to make i think we need to think about we need more vacation time so like i think it i think one of the things that that i think is actually really important is the weekend destination like it is it is it is unhinged that people fly from new york to california for a weekend like that doesn't actually, like from a climate perspective, from a time difference perspective, it doesn't make sense. And I think part of that is a function of the fact that we get so little time off in this country that you feel like you have to crack, fit everything in and nicks and crack it, crannies. Whereas if, what if we got eight or 10 weeks of vacation a year, then you could actually go to California, you could spend a significant amount of time out there and maybe do one flight out there a year or one cross country train, high speed rail train a year and, and get your California fix in. Like, I think we need to be thinking along solutions in those terms too, like reorienting our, our society around patterns of behavior that are actually just more conducive to well-being and health. And I, I think that we also have this very, um, we like, we have to have exactly what we want when we want it. Right. We need instant gratification and we need to have, and I see this when, um, especially regarding like produce, like if you live somewhere that they're very farm to table and people are like, well, I want this. Well, that's not in season now, but yet they'd be willing to pay to fly it in from, you know, Ecuador or whatever, you know, country they're getting their produce from. And that's to me a very American thing. This very demanding, no compromise, not what, like we want what we want right now. And that attitude has got to change. And that to me is the biggest part of this because we cannot keep up at the lifestyle that we're living. We cannot sustain that. It's just not, it's not going to work. We're imploding. And it, it's, it's even deeper than that. One of the last things I did pre-COVID was I went on a trash walk with this woman named Anna Sachs. Um, I think she, her Instagram title is The Trash Walker. Um, and she's a waste diversion expert. And we went on this um, walk around uh, kind of a chunk of the Upper West Side of Manhattan and going through garbage bags. And one of the things, one of the stores we went to was a bakery and we found four of those giant kind of black plastic garbage bags filled with bread products. And they overproduce because they want you to go inside the store when you, even at end of day and see just shelf after shelf filled with bread and feeling like you have this bounty. But because it was an artisanal bread store, that stuff doesn't keep. So they basically have to toss it out every day. And she she said this thing that sort of stuck with me. She's like, you have to go to the store and sometimes be okay with that thing that you really want. It's not the thing that you're going to get. And you have to make do with something slightly different. And that's just it. And like, if you really want this product, you have to go earlier in the day. Or if this product is in high demand, they'll make a little bit more of this and a little bit more less of that. But like, we shouldn't be throwing four giant bags of bread. And this is one store, right? Like this is one store. Like you, you expand that out across New York city, you expand that out across the country and it's just a tremendous amount of waste. Yeah. Well, that's why, I mean, we're huge proponents of composting among other things, 
You know, you have different things that you can do locally that can really build a lot of community camaraderie, like a community garden, horticulture, uh, bee colonies, obviously mm -hmm. composting. Uh, there are things that could be done, and they're not that expensive. You just need the people, you need the space, um, but there's also a lot of politics involved. You know, they yeah. try to squash these things for a number of different reasons, not the least of which it's kind of like why we don't really have a clean energy initiative in the United States. We do have clean energy, but it makes up such a, you know, it's like 13% of the grid. It should be making up over half the grid by now, but it doesn't. And that, of course, has to do with the fossil fuel industry moving heaven and earth. I mean, the amount of money that they have to spend on lobbying and bribery in order to continue the charade for go continuing to go on, despite all the obvious signs that it's got to stop, is amazing. Some people, it requires a lot of money, some very little to buy them off and have them just look the other way. Um, but I think a lot of these things start at the local level. And I think if we really focus on the community building aspect of what the type of future we really want in terms of the environment, I think that really is the ticket. It, it's like most things. Everything starts at the local level. We, um, we have a very silly uh, like joke or ethos on how to save a planet, which is kind of like go to the meeting nobody ever goes to. Um, because that's where change happens on the local level. And, and and you don't need to be that many to make that change. And so we recently ran an episode that was um, a listener mail episode. Like we reached, we reached out to our listeners and we're like, you, you know, we've been around for two years now. What have you learned from us? What have you put into place? And the things that people have done are incredible. Um, like one group of students were able to block an Exxon project in their community. Um, and it was because they went to the meeting that nobody goes to. And so that's like really important. Like go to the planning board meeting, go to your zoning board meetings, go to, you know, go to your utility board meetings, because that's where a lot of decisions get made and they get made in, in secret, not because they're not closed door, but they're, they're secret because, because there is no, this is, I think I talk about this a lot, but I think this is actually one of the biggest failings of media is we don't talk about democracy as participatory. We talk about it in a way where it very much feels like it's a thing that you watch. Just vote. Just vote every just year. Vote every and, year. Yeah, and, make sure, and make sure you vote blue because, you know, that's going to solve the problem. Uh, and, and what's even... Should middle talk? No, I apologize. <laughs> I, <laughs> no worries. But yeah, we don't talk about it as participatory and we don't talk to people about where the levers of change are and like where are the places that they can they can intervene. And that's a, a really big thing that we try to do with the show is we try to highlight areas of intervention for people um, without, you know, advocating like you do this. It's more like... If the more we tell you how the system works, the more we tell you different points of entry, the more you as an individual can understand where you have the power to enter in. And we tell people to bring a friend. So it's not a thing that you have to do alone. It's a thing that you do in community. Um, those are kind of the two really, I think, really important things is like go to the meeting nobody goes to and bring a friend when you do it, right? Like that is how you get that community support. That is how you build the ground support. That is how you learn about the other person who's always been going to the meeting and feels the same way that you do and you don't feel alone anymore. Um, and that can be, yeah, sorry, I don't want to keep it's very, it's very participatory. And when we, when I ran for Congress, one of the things that we always did was go to all the neighborhood community meetings, all the association meetings where you find out where all the problems are. And you not only that, but you meet the people that are most active and most involved in those communities. Um, and that is how you can get things done. We, There's no doubt about it. We saw Surfside coming about a year before it actually happened because uh, we were going to Surfside at the time was part of the congressional district mm -hmm. and we were going to these city commission meetings and they were sounding the alarm saying that 
the saltwater erosion from the sea level rise is causing these buildings to shake at the foundation. And these people literally just sitting there like, yeah, well, you know, not much we can do. And now they're not even investigating. They've stopped. They're not having the investigation into the building collapse because the insurance company settled with the victims' families. And so they're just not investigating it. And the two city commission people that wanted to have that happen were voted out and replaced by two people, including a mayor that's like, tied in with all these developer projects like it's basically instead of solving that problem they're just building more it's interesting too because i did a story at the end of last year for mit tech review and uh it just got cut but um but several of the people and then a report came out right afterwards but several of the people i talked to um suggested that it's not just saltwater intrusion that's what people think it is but it's also groundwater rise which is that as um as sea level rises Okay, so groundwater sits on top of sea um, seawater, and we think of groundwater as like a giant underground lake or something, but it's not that. It is water in between kind of the pores of soil. So when you go to the beach and you dig a hole kind of near the shore, and as you remove the sand, water fills in, that is almost like the equivalent of groundwater. You, um, so anyway, as the sea level rises, that groundwater, that water table rises with it, and it floods from below. And one of the biggest things that the takeaway of that story is that the flood maps are wrong all over the country because you don't factor in rising groundwater. And lots of places are at risk of flooding that are, you know, a mile away from the ocean and don't know it because they're not factored into the, the current groundwater maps. There's, um, I believe it's supposed to be included as a risk factor in the next national climate assessment, but it's missing in a lot of places. And South Florida is one of the places where it's a particular risk because of the limestone, which is incredibly porous. Yeah, that's something that people here don't realize and they can keep building all they want. And we actually had at one point the head of our local uh, uh, DEC had suggested that the solution was just to build a seawall, yeah, um, as if that'll solve the the problem. Seawalls um, don't block out groundwater, unfortunately. Uh, no, <laughs> and they certainly don't protect your freshwater from being intruded upon when you live over a limestone aquifer. So yeah. your seawall, but anyway, like people, we're going to run out of drinking water. That's my concern more so than even if you move inland and you can avoid like and you build up, you know, so that you're not in the water or whatever we're not going to have clean drinking water here. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you heard like last year, maybe there was a town in, I believe, Utah that stopped development because they said that they didn't believe that they would have water for future generations. I have been saying this and I know this is so radical to people and it is probably like something that will get me labeled as crazy person. But I really do think there needs to be a moratorium on non-necessary development, on non-infrastructural development, because at least until we can upgrade our infrastructure to it, we can't even accommodate the people that are here now. Uh, there's parts of Fort Lauderdale that have serious problems when it rains. There's like sewage in the streets because... Mm-hmm. They're not so like I'm not averse to it, but maybe we should play catch up a little bit. Yeah. And I and I think most people are just not involved with their community. There's a reason why low voter turnout is a common thing, and sometimes at an abysmal level. You know, you don't have people uh, you know, yeah. going to networking events and building relationships with people. You know, one of the biggest things about politics that drives me crazy is you know, when somebody's running for office, it seems like all they ever want to do, whichever party they're in, is just focus on going to their clubs and caucuses and places like that and just talking to that echo chamber. No, you need to talk to people who frankly think politics sucks. You need to talk to them about why now actually politics affects your everyday life. I am not here. We're not here to talk about the drama side of politics, which is why people don't want to be involved in the first place. If you can avoid that aspect and just focus on 
the real serious stuff. Like, yeah, drinking water, that's important. Being able to pay your bills, that's important. Healthcare, that's important. I think most people care about those things, but they're not nearly as focused on it as they should be. And so much of what dominates our media and just sort of the echo chamber is anything but those things. And it's always this tug of war going back and forth. How do you see, uh, how do you see from a political standpoint? Because I thought you had a great conversation with Jon Stewart. Um, I'm surprised. Uh, I haven't, I would hope more people would want to have you on their podcast to talk about this. Because to me, this is very important stuff. And, you know, it, it's almost like we're shouting into the ether, letting them know mm-hmm. that, you know, we're trying to sound the alarm that this is, this is serious. This isn't just the climate slightly changing. No, this is a serious problem, and it's coming to your doorstep. If you don't look at what's happening in Puerto Rico and thinking it ain't coming to you, trust me, it'll be here even faster than people can, you know, they're like, oh, it'll be 10 years from now, 20 years from now. No, it could happen tomorrow. I mean, it's already, you know, I'm I'm in New York and we're in a drought technically right now. Um, We were hit last summer by Ida, you know, several people died in their basements. it's not a future thing. It's a, it's a here thing. And people are, you know, um, farmers are already having to shift their behaviors. Farmers in the Northeast who never had to think about irrigation before are having to invest in irrigation because they can't depend on summer rains. Um, it's a real issue. And what we need more than anything is we need the best possible information to best prepare because what ends up happening is you prepare for like what you're seeing now, but you're not preparing for what you're seeing five years from now, what, what you can expect say 10 years from now. And so you're making these incremental changes, but like you're saying, you're, we're just constantly playing catch up instead of actually doing things in a way where we can get ahead of the problem. We, we always mock those people. We mock those people when they're ahead of time. It's so funny. So I saw Michael Mann was on um, Democracy Now! And we've had him on a couple of times and it's, he is the person that's been like screaming from the rooftops for years. We're all going to die. I mean, I did like the Jennifer Lawrence character yeah. and don't look up, but like it's true. And now people are like, oh yeah, maybe he was on to something, but yet they're still doing it for the person who's saying what's coming up. Like, it's almost like every time we think we've learned something, we're still denying what the next person is saying. You know what I'm like? You know yeah. what I mean? I think cognitive dissonance, dissonance is huge. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this today, like there's this part of your brain where you're like working on a story. There's part of your brain that's like, oh, I need to like take a photo of everything in my home for insurance purposes. And then there's a part of your brain that's like, what am I making for dinner? And I think it's really hard to balance out those different emotions and those different thoughts and those different priorities, especially when you're in a space that isn't necessarily reinforcing that this calamity is coming your way and maybe you're working two or three jobs just to get food on your table or maybe you're just working one job but like you have two kids and like you're just you know you've got a lot on your plate and nothing in the structure of how we do things is telling you to make this a priority until it's too late well that's what i always say you know most people are just struggling to get by you know most americans can't afford what a 400 dollars emergency you know most people are just struggling to live they don't have time to vote They don't care to vote because, quite honestly, from their perspective, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter who's there. Like most people are just if you're working three jobs just to try to get by, it doesn't matter to you who the president is. And I got and I got to tell you, uh, Kendra, I would I would imagine from your perspective, especially being in New York, 
the level of sanctimony with certain liberals who just want you to vote for the status quo and that it doesn't matter if anything changes. It's like this sort of level of inconvenience that they think that your life can be crappy, but ours is very good and we don't want that to change. So do as we say so we can continue living in this fantasy world. Uh, I think it's like that viewpoint is got to be shattered. And I'm almost curious, what do you think is worse? The perspective of having a Trump running our environmental policy, which is just you know, have a total free for all regarding, Balls you know, do, who cares right. or having somebody like Joe, who in some ways is even worse because of the drilling permits. But then they attempt to say that, oh, you know, we're going to do this very little something, something that may over time potentially be good. And then they make it out to be like the greatest thing in the history of the world in terms of what we've done. This is the say. greatest climate yeah. legislation. That's we've had. that, in, in my opinion, could actually be a lot worse because then if people think, OK, we've well, everything's going to be fine right. now and. And, and that's that. How, how do you see that? I mean, I think it's easy to say that if you're not talking of the perspective from people who are directly harmed under both administrations. Right. Um, and I think I think if you look at what Trump did and I think if you look at the way he packed the courts and not just the Supreme Courts, I think that legacy is still with us and will still be with us for a really long time. Yeah. And so I don't think it's as I think I think people feel like if you elect someone who is catastrophic on the climate, things will get so bad that it will be an impetus for um, real change and real action. And I think the the previous, you know, the previous administration showed that that wasn't true. Um, I it, I think many people think that absent COVID, he would have been reelected. Um, and so- Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Biden barely won. And so- I, I don't. I, 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 so the way I comment climate is, I think it's it's not enough to think about climate in a vacuum. You have to think about climate as an interconnected issue. And so one of the things that sort of dominated the headlines, I think, especially in 2017, was some was uh, the migrant surge, and we're getting that again this year. And often absent from those messaging around around the migrant surge at the time was that many of those people were coming from an area of Central America known as the Dry Corridor that was disproportionately impacted by climate change. They were in deep drought and they were hungry. And so this was their best effort to to survive was to leave, right? And so that was an important chunk that's missing from that narrative. And I think about what what Trump did on day one, which is essentially close the borders, and you can't you can't disentangle those two, right? You know, you can't look at the harms that he did to, to families with you know forced child separation, some of which um, you know, Biden has continued. And I just think that there there mo- that government is a lot like climate, where it is a fast moving train that is slow to to stop or change direction. And we have to be careful about who we put into power and who who we allowed to create momentum. We're still dealing with the threat of rising fascism. You know, um, I'm black. A lot of my friends have these conversations about whether or not it is wise to continue to stay in this country or whether or not we should have exit strategies. A lot of my friends who are eligible for second passports have gone ahead and gotten them just in case. I don't think, I mean, from a broader perspective, not just climate, I don't think, I think people are underestimating the real risks that we're continuing to face. I think that is a great place to wind down the conversation. Um, no, the mass really migration, both in this country yeah. to like, I'm not kidding when I say we need to head to higher ground. Everything south of Lake Okeechobee is going to be underwater people. I, they can deny that all they want. But like, but the, from country to country and what that's doing geopolitically yeah. is is huge. And of course, we're 
everyone that I see in this country takes it as an opportunity to use people as sort of political pawns and do everything from, you know, traffic humans from one place to another and use wall building and all of these things. Like we're using this climate crisis as political like maneuvering. That's when what it feels like. When the reality is, is that for many of these countries, we could, they're, they're you know, in, in the in the coming COP, COP20, I don't remember anymore, COP27, the one in Egypt, that's a huge loss and damage and, and is a huge issue. And that's partly because there are things that can be done to allow many people who don't actually want to migrate to stay in place. There are things that we can do to help countries adapt to climate change so that people aren't starving, right? But we're not doing those things. Instead, we're doing the worst possible things and we're using people as pawns and we're not actually addressing their needs and helping them survive. Yeah. But then again, I think we should offer people like nice dorms or hotel rooms when they come here until they get on their feet. And, you know, and I don't think it should be criminal. But then again, you know, I'm a I'm a crazy commie or whatever I've been called in whatever year. So, well, Guy Guyverson, great friend of the show, uh, was wondering, uh, did you see the documentary Planet of the Humans by Michael Moore and what your thoughts were in regards? To I have not actually seen it. I so. haven't seen it either, but I think <laughs> I had read enough reviews to decide that I didn't want to raise my blood pressure that much. Okay. Oh, I can't. Okay. <laughs> well, that well, makes sense. It's self-preservation. I'll ra- but before you go, I'll raise your blood blood pressure ever so slightly. Oh no! What are you going to uh, do? You know, the average person knows that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. The people who are pulling levers of power know ten times more than what the persons who are looking down or look on the outside don't know. How is it that people who do know? just how dangerous and devastating these things are, just continue to go full full speed ahead. Is that rhetorical? No, I'm serious. Like why? Financial incentive, no? Yeah, but you can't drink oil and you can't eat money. They don't care. They're going to mine it until they die. Um, a friend of mine a very long time ago worked for um, some very, very, very affluent people. And she said it really shifted her perspective on wealth and the way people with money behave. And part of it, I think, is cognitive dissonance. I think, and I don't think that's just limited to people in power or people with extreme wealth, where they just don't really, they they understand that something is happening, but like it is easy if it's not happening continually to distance yourself from that reality, right? Like there's something about the human brain that it, I don't think it's inured to trauma, but it sort of just sort of gets used to it. Like we've done, there are studies that show that after several years of extreme weather, we get used to several years of extreme weather. So there's that aspect of it. But there's this other aspect of it, which is I think in many cases, people think their power and their wealth will protect them. I, I agree a thousand percent. And, and I, do, I, I do think there is, there's so many true, again, I don't want to feel like we're living through don't look up, but it's so, I mean, we, you know, we're friendly with David Sirota. It, it's so weird how, Life is imitating art in the worst kind of way. Like it really, he, they hit him and Adam McKay hit every note possible. And it's almost like there couldn't have been a greater warning about what's going on. And I don't, I, you know, I'm at the point where I'm thinking if we, even if we had like a real global catastrophe, mm-hmm. like, like, like a 10 million people died mm-hmm. like would that finally be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't know at this point. No, not no. You'd have to have people like like Bill Gates profiting off of that somehow, and Elon Musk would do something. Like th- there would be so much to profit off of, and whatever they were going to be doing, like everything is a profit motive for. Well, it's people. even something right now, and 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 the last thing I'll mention is obviously we've got the prospect of 
you know, the rail workers, railroad workers mm-hmm. strike, because that's still very likely to happen. And the audacity of the president to go on 60 Minutes and say, oh, I took care of that. Right. It's like, you didn't take care of anything. But people believe that. So I think the railroad worker strike is a really good example of sort of what's wrong with, I think, a lot of media and also what's wrong with the way in which we, we prop up our values. And this is why I was getting back to, like, I think we need different values and different priorities in order more so than we need even different technology. We need it, We need to tweak our culture. And it's because if you read a lot of the coverage, especially the early coverage, so much of it was centered on the disruption, what products you weren't going to be able to get, how it might impact your online shopping, these kinds of things, right? Very little of that coverage, um, with the exception of, I believe, Vice did a really good story where they interviewed 28 railroad workers. Very little of that coverage was the fact that these are people who essentially don't get any paid time off. Right. Very little that they're constantly on call. Very little of it was essentially that these people are working under horrific conditions that very few of us would sign up to work under. Right. And and that part of that reason that that's happening is because of private equity kind of taking over the railroads. Like very little of that was was actually made in, in made it way into mainstream coverage of what was actually going on with the railroad strike. And, and you see that a little bit for, I think, Fortune did a story about UPS workers might potentially go on strike. And it sort of centered the top weight, the top possible wage you can make as a UPS driver. It ignored how many were part-time workers. It ignored the fact that UPS workers are forced to dr- deliver packages in extreme heat without air conditioning and some have been, died on the job. Like it, it kind of alluded past all of that. And you see that again earlier, I think it was the Kellogg or the jam, the, I don't, I don't eat cereal, so I don't know, but the general milk, one of the cereal companies went on straight. And so much of the coverage was, thank you. So much of the coverage was like, what cereal you wouldn't be able to get and very little about like, what are they actually striking for? And you see that over and over again. And so what it does constantly is it, it creates a scarcity mindset where these people, you don't learn that what they're fighting for. You don't learn what their rights are. And so you don't, you can't actually make the decision of like, it is fine that I can't get my Cheerios, Cheerios, that's General Mills. I can't get my Cheerios for a while because these people are fighting for rights that I agree with, it is framed completely in how this fight for rights will inconvenience you. And I think we do that to a certain extent with climate too, which is why I recently did an episode on bicycling. And the reason I did this episode was because so much of the way we talk about cycling, it is framed as an obligation. You should be biking to work. You should be biking around because it is better for the environment. But that's not why I cycle. That's not why I have three bikes. I ride bikes because it's fun. And so the whole point of the story is that riding a bike, especially when you have decent infrastructure, it's actually a delightful way of getting around. And, and it's a thing that is, it is a form of theft that more of us are not able to bike around when we want to. Oh, I, I could not agree more. And, and again, it's the funny thing is the solutions, they're all there. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's this magic, you know, there, this magic formula that we're looking for. All the things that we need to fix this problem, they're right in front of us. We just have to have the will to make it so. We need to get rid of the people that are on the corporate payroll that are blocking but, things from happening. I mean, yes, but we also, I think, you see this a lot with like fashion where people are like, you know, don't buy Shein, don't buy, you know, and people are like, well, I can't not buy Shein. And it's like, this company didn't exist really for most people five to 10 years ago. And you were not going through life naked. It is possible to, to buy less clothes. Like that is a thing that it is, it is within your grasp. I definitely, I, agree. I definitely agree. Kendra, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. No, it's great guys. You check know? out the, um, the podcast. It's how to save a planet. And it's really good, actually. I've checked it out and it's got some really good stuff. And you're on Spotify and it's also on like 
Apple? No, nope, just on Spotify. Just Spotify. Okay, cool. Good for you. Well, we're Screw on Apple. Well, we're on. Well, we're on YouTube, <laughs> Apple, and Spotify. So Whatever. I can care less about <laughs> Apple. If you want to check out Kendra's work? Please go to KendraWrites.com. Find about all of her information, and if you're so inclined. She has been in the big leagues. We're trying to get there, but, you know, it takes a little time. She did a wonderful podcast earlier this year with John Stewart, fellow uh, Jersey Shore guy, if, uh, <laughs> if I might say so. And I think what you're doing is exceptionally important. Yeah. Uh, journalism is a lost art and climate journalism. Forget it. No, I, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, no. It's, it's Have you spo- have you spoken with Jordan Cheriton a status quo as of yet? Um, I don't believe so, no. Okay, well, we're going to make that happen. Yeah, so, yeah. that's for sure, because make, yeah. he is for like, yeah, like you're kind you, you of two are you're parallel. Like, you're almost like two like boats passing in the night that should have connected already. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, kind of. I don't leave the Zoom box anymore. <laughs> well, you know, he's over in Jersey and considering the things that he covers when he goes on the road, particularly in the Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, yeah. Michigan, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he is... He's at everything the for- from water crisis. He to was labor. At, yeah. He was at the forefront of the Flint water crisis, and he's Standing gone. Rock. Yeah, he's he's really like the environment. That is a huge thing yeah. that he covers, and to potentially have an opportunity to the two of you to like work together on a project. I, I say mean, cross pollinate. Like, absolutely. So we'll be working on that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Kendra. Thanks again for having me. Have a great bye. Night. Bye, everyone. She was lovely. Yes, she was. And her work is even more lovely. And again, sort of that lost art, if you will, of recognizing that it isn't just what we do on the outside, but it is also what we do on the inside. And that being said, as we've emphasized quite often on our podcast, if you're going to support anyone running for office, it doesn't matter what party they're in or in many ways necessarily what they support, because If you're supporting somebody who is not bought and paid for by corporate special interests, there is pretty good odds that you can find common ground on whatever the topic may be. Or more importantly, that they'll have to be responsive to the people that are electing them if they're not corporate owned. And the good news is, as happy as we are that Gen Z or Maxwell Frost is going to the federally elected seat of Orlando. He is not the only Gen Zer that is running for local office. Why must we label our generations these ridiculous Because we things? need people, well, again, us, Gen and, X, and why? And well, I don't understand millennial. Like, if you're going to call it Gen X, Gen Z, Gen, why millennial? We're That's special. like Gen X, Gen Z, We're very special. Like, I don't, I don't Extremely understand that. It's so ridiculous. No, actually, millennials are considered millennials. like the laziest people like around. You think I'm lazy? No, I didn't say I think you're lazy. Okay, I'm good. saying millennials. You're on the cusp. Oof, that's terrible. You're on the cusp of millennialism anyway. Uh, uh, 1983. I'm at the very beginning. So. Right. That's what I mean. Like, you... You were almost in the with the cool kids. Well, the good news is, is that our next guest is a Gen Zer, and he's non-corporate progressive, and he's been endorsed by some wonderful organizations, including the Progressive Caucus of Florida, and he won his primary unexpectedly in Florida's 119th House District, Miami. Where else would it be? Well, but there are several districts in Miami. Miami well, we'll learn about district. that. Miami's we'll learn- massive. Yes, it's 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 pretty, it's huge. It's really huge. I'm from there. So we'll learn all about it. Well, from a North Miami to finding out exactly where District 119 is. Yes. Gabriel Gonzalez, welcome to Generational Change. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Um, this is actually my first podcast appearance ever, so I'm actually really, really excited. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very cool. And you know what? I like your logo. Because Thank you. Because 
Yeah. Yeah, the sun. <laughs> I like it. Um, so it, tell me where your district is exactly, because I know, I mean, I, I am actually pretty fluent Miami. Cool. Yeah. So House District 119 is way out in the western end of Miami-Dade County. Um, so it's going to be like the hammocks, um, lakes by the meadow, country walk, all of that area. Um, the westernmost boundary is Chrome. Northernmost boundary is 8th Street. Southernmost is 232nd. And then the okay. easternmost is either 137th or 147th Avenue. So right up against the Everglades. Miami. Southwest yeah, Miami. Exactly. Okay. So what what was the primary like for you? And, and you know, how was, I mean, is this your first time running? Yeah, it is my first time running. First time I'm also legally allowed to run. So definitely my first time running. Okay, so how um, was that for you um, running in the primary down there? I mean, and, and I'm assuming you, you ran, you're a Democrat, yes? Like you ran yes. in the primary. Yes. So how was that? Mm-hmm. That that was quite an interesting experience. I will say definitely a learning experience for sure. Um, and it was great to have that experience of learning more about my community, learning more about myself and learning how to run an effective campaign. Like I've done campaign work previously um, for local candidates or candidates across the country before, but always as an organizer or always as a volunteer, um, never actually being the one whose name was on the ballot or being the one calling all the shots. So it was very, very interesting. Um, one thing that I learned was the importance of having a good team to help you and support you. Um, mm-hmm. I've been very lucky to have my family helping me. Um, they're definitely the reason that I was able to get this far. Um, and then also another thing that I really did learn was that the strength of the candidate and the strength of the message and the strength of being able to get yourself out there um, are things that really do help propel a candidacy forward. And even though I was outraised and outspent by my opponent, and even though my opponent was twice as old as I was, and even though he was a lawyer, hey, um, I had... Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm just saying. (laughs) Well, I was able to um, win my primary by a landslide by 12 points, and I carried 56% of the vote. So um, that actually may be the youngest Democrat in the history of the state of Florida to ever win a state legislature primary, and youngest out LGBTQ individual to do so as well. So our campaign has already made history, and if I were to advance past the general election, I'd be the first member of Gen Z in the state legislature if I if my data is correct. <laughs> so what is, and what does that district look like in terms of the, the blue red configuration? Is the, I mean, I'm assuming you, there was some sort of redistricting effect to you. Yeah, what's actually really interesting about this district is because of redistricting, it's an open seat and there's no incumbent, which is really good for me. Um, And then the largest voting block percentage-wise is actually non-party affiliated or independents. Um, uh, They're around 35% of the entire voting population of around 100,000 registered voters. So we have a really good shot at flipping this district blue um, before it was red, but um, now because of the redistricting shifts in... um, shifts in party identification, as well as all of the things that's been going on at the state level and the national level, um, we have a very, very good shot of flipping the seat blue. And it's actually rated a D plus three last time I checked. Oh, okay. And like, what what's your main message? Because, you know, you're out canvassing, you're meeting people and, you know, clearly there's some issues, you know, like we have a mm-hmm. lot of issues, whether you want to talk about like housing, you know, when you talk about things in Tallahassee um, and people here tend to be pretty libertarian. Um, you know, people here tend to be very independent, like that's thing. So what's your message? Because coming at people, especially in Southwest aid, um, totally from the left, uh, isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. the best way, but coming at them with a populist message that, you know, so I think I'm just curious, like how you're approaching that. 
Yeah, uh, what we've been trying to do so far is highlight um, most of my experience serving the community. I have a very long record of service in the community, being in the community, doing that work, um, helping bring material benefits to the people that live here. Like um, I've logged over 10,000 community service hours and I founded my own nonprofit organization to help pediatric cancer patients and their families. Um, so uh, just sort of coming at it from that sort of perspective that I've devoted my whole life to service and I will do well to serve you in Tallahassee, that sort of thing. But also another thing with my age and me being a member of a new generation, it's that aspect of bringing change, of bringing hope, of bringing um, a new brighter future to the Sunshine State. Um, lots of people here feel that their government isn't listening to them. They're disillusioned with the current system and they feel like people in power, which are Republicans at this point in time, um, have turned their back on them. And that's really something that we're trying to push out and to get our message out there because I want to be that person who does listen to you, who does take your needs seriously and to make sure that public service and the government goes back to actually serving the people, which is what it should be all along. Yes, that's our mission, transforming politics into service. That's what we aim to do here. And I'll tell you from my experience, and I say this all the time, people just have to like you. They have to mm -hmm. like you. They have to like the way you make them feel when they meet you. They have to trust you. And that's it. Like, you don't even have to agree with that. Like, most people, especially when you're dealing with a general election and you're not dealing with, like, party sycophantic people and you're out there just meeting regular people, they just have to like you and trust that you're going to fight for them. And that's basically, I mean, I look at Tallahassee as a defense job. Like, you're just going there to play defense. You're not... It's, and that's somewhat of a defeatist position to be in, but it's still, we need people there doing that. Yeah, exactly. There's too much at stake for us not to flip as many seats as we can. And at the end of the day, even though we might not be at a point where in this cycle we can recapture the majority, it's a lot easier to capture the majority with like 31 seats versus 29 or 28. So every cycle, if you have an opportunity to pick up a seat, that puts us in a better position moving forward. And we need to be playing the long game in a way that the other side has been doing for decades, which has led them to be in the position that they're in now. Couldn't have said it better. I think that that is one of the things that the non-corporate progressive side and especially the younger side gets that the older liberals do not get. Uh, unfortunately, for too many decades, it's always been sort of this top-down effect. Oh, we only have to focus on what's going on at the top. No. Uh, the GOP is infinitely better than Democrats are when it comes to strategy. And what is their strategy? Everything is from the ground up. We value the precinct committee leaders. Yep. We value the school board. We value mm -hmm. the foundation more than the top. I always say uh, there's no way that a person like George W. Bush could ever become president in the Democratic Party because he's not a Trojan horse. He's not somebody that can carry the torch, so to speak, like a Obama or Clinton or was hoping Bernie could have done. Ultimately, you need that foundation if your goal is to ultimately change the infrastructure, like we were talking about with our previous guest, Kendra, that having representatives like you represent in Tallahassee also adds a whole other element in terms of the type of people that could be brought into the coalition in Dade that are otherwise not being brought in. There is, as you know, a huge percentage of the Hispanic population 
has been moving over to the GOP over the past few years. It's one of those things, especially in the era of Trump, that people really don't want to talk about, but it is a serious issue. What's that experience been like for you watching that sort of transition happen when in reality we need much more of the economic populism coming from the left if we're ever going to get where we need to go? It's been a little frustrating to say the least, which is part of the reason that I jumped into the race and I jumped into electoral politics is because the things that I've been seeing have not been matching up with my own personal experiences of the way that we can move forward, both as a state and as a country. What you were saying with the top-down approach on the Democratic Party side is absolutely correct. We're focusing all of our energy and resources at top of the ticket races when really we should be focusing on the bottom of the ticket races, like your state house races, your municipal elections, your supervisor of elections and your school board races not only for a strategic point of view, but also it helps with building a brand because the ones who are in your community, the ones that people know, the ones that people trust are going to be your local elected officials because they're the ones that are closest to the people. Val Demings is not coming to your door. Charlie Chris is not coming to your door, but I am. The other state house and state senate candidates are because we've been here for a very long time. So if you have people that you know, that you trust, that are serving you well up in Tallahassee, not only does that do good things for you on an interpersonal level, but electorally, it helps build the brand for the party and increases trust generally in the entire system. I think if we're being very honest, it looks very, very likely that our governor is going to be reelected. And if that is the case, then you you can't drag the Democratic nominee across the finish line by just pumping all of your support behind him. The only chance you would have of potentially changing that fate is focusing on races like yours. If people are ultimately going to vote for you, they'll vote up. They'll very likely vote for Charlie for governor. Right. That's how you can change the possibility of what is considered likely to happen. Whereas if you vote for Charlie, a lot of people just vote for that and then they don't continue to vote down ballot. Think about how many. That is what's so amazing to me. Yeah. How many people don't even vote down ballot? They'll have a ballot. And I understand you've often said this. The only seat that you probably shouldn't vote for if you really don't know is for judges. Well, I don't. Well, I don't vote for anything that if I don't know, but I usually research and I also do vote by mail so that I have plenty of time. But um, no, I don't think people should vote for judges. I don't think the judiciary should be an elected branch. That's well, just yeah, my, well, I have- Appointed. I, I do. I, I, I do. I don't think, I think you have two elected branches. I think that the judiciary should be appointed. I do. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's where the whole convolution of the entire judicial system really becomes a major talking point. And so, Gabriel, from your perspective, if you had to name your top three issues, state issues that you're really focused on, I would imagine the environment is one of the three. But what would you say are the top three that you would be focused on should you be fortunate enough to win? I mean, again, it's a plus three seat. Um, It is still Dade. So it's probably if we're being honest, it's probably a toss up. So you're going to need to get the votes out for sure. But if you are fortunate enough to get to Tallahassee and working with our friend Anna Escamani and other people, what would be something that uh, what would be the top three that you would be focusing on? Well, definitely the first one would be the climate crisis. Um, It's no secret that South Florida um, is at high 
uh, is at an elevated risk for the effects of climate change, and not only with um, more flooding and higher temperatures, but also longer hurricane seasons and longer, more powerful tropical cyclone activities uh, could be happening down here in the South Florida area. That's something that we deal with every single summer, and it's only going to get worse as the climate crisis goes on. So we need to have people in Tallahassee, especially in this state, um, that really understand the extent of the crises and is willing to act boldly and in a very visionary way to help avert that crisis. Um, second off, we are having a major affordable housing crisis down here in the southern end of Florida. Um, I know it's in the state overall, but especially here in South Florida, it's very, very bad. So um, that's something that I'd be very excited to tackle. Um, and then the third one, obviously, these social issues. Um, our state is descending into fascism, and we really have to stop that any way that we can. All of our fundamental human rights have been attacked in some way or another in the previous legislative session, and the state legislature and the governor have shown no signs of stopping this relentless attack. Like voting rights and the right to peaceably assemble, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, all of them have been in some way, shape or form curtailed. And we need to make sure that that's stopped or reversed if possible. Yeah. No question. Uh, I, anytime, anytime I hear a Democrat bring up any type of social justice issue in the state of Florida, Randy Fine is the first person that comes to mind. <laughs> he's just so, he's just so bad. He, he really... Um, is kind of as emblematic in many ways of the issues with the GOP in the state. And it is, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a very unique state in a lot of ways, but it's a state that I still think has, you know, great potential. And if anybody would like to get involved with your campaign, Lord knows we'll be potentially seeing you out there on the trail. The election, uh, election season uh, pretty much is in full swing at this point. And of course, election day is uh, six weeks away, I guess. Yeah, about six weeks. So, or seven weeks. Right, close enough. But if anybody would like to get involved, it's uh, GabrielForFlorida.com. So we're going to put that up there for you right now. And what do you need? Money. He well, needs money. Yeah. Yes, I do need funding. Uh, we are actually fortunate enough to be a completely grassroots funded campaign and we have no corporate money. As of yet, we have no PAC money and we're funded entirely by contributors that are in the community. We have community support in a way that the Republican Party does not have. Their mm -hmm. entire funding is coming from $50,000 that the party put into their race, as well as dark money and corporate entities that have been pumping the maximum amount of contributions into their race. Sure. Not a single individual contribution from what I've seen since the primary has been pumped into that race. And we are fully, fully people powered and people funded. That's so good. funding and volunteers. We can right. Well, you're going to get a donation from Generational Change. So, you know, we're going to everything we can to help. And guys, if you can go to GabrielForFlorida.com, remember, there are all kinds of contributions you can make, not just financial, yeah. in-kind contributions, phone banking, text banking. And, and share. Sharing on social mm -hmm. media, canvassing is canvassing definitely the biggest one, especially as we hit. Uh, you know, the one thing that's different regarding the primary season in Florida is that the weather in July and August can be quite unbearable. The good news is, mm -hmm. is that it's at the end enough. of September, early October, the weather starts to become fairly tolerable. So if you are thinking about getting out and lending a hand, even in Miami, uh, this would definitely be one of those races that is very important, regardless of what happens in the gubernatorial race. You have to start putting more chess pieces on the board that are not going to just do rubber stamp voting on corporate policy up in Tallahassee. This is something that will make a huge difference. And let's be honest, uh, 
you can't just have Maxwell Frost win a race. You need a whole bunch of other people within this new generation to be able to recognize the fragility of the circumstances we're living in right now. I think you absolutely get that, Gabriel. We are obviously happy to support you in your efforts. And you know, sure. once, once again, uh, go to GabrielForFlorida.com, lend a hand, contribute, volunteer, do all those wonderful things that we have done before and we'll continue. I also highly strongly recommend camel packs for um, canvassing. That's how I got through a lot was camel pack. And I would actually put ice pack in the pack with the water. I can never figure out how that works. I know whatever. (laughs) Kept it on my back the whole time, but I'm, you know, twice your age. So we'll, we'll, that's a smart, that's a smart idea. Okay. uh, No. And then you have hands free (laughs) holding your water bottle or anything like that. I was camel. I, it was the best thing I ever did. Let us know about any, yeah. Let us know about any big canvassing day that you may have. Maybe we can supply the pizza or something like that. You know, it's always, if you want to have one of those big canvassing days, we always recommend if you feed the volunteers, (laughs) they will show up. That is That that is Feed definitely them. yeah. If your <laughs> if your mother has any or your father has any great food recipes and they want to make something and you know you bring sort of like that family get together before you all go out and canvas in the neighborhood for a few hours. Hey. Uh, those types of things really go along. Basically, way. Peter's saying if you feed him, he'll come canvas for you. I didn't say that, but <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that I wouldn't. You know, I, you know. When I, if I, if, I, if I, your parents or your mother cooks really good food and you're offering whatever that is, he'll come canvas. Well, I'm just saying, basically. you know, I, I, you know, fish tacos, <laughs> that type of stuff. It's always, it's, it's, it's nobody's making you fish tacos. Oh, you never know. You never know. You got to hold that hope, but you got, but beggars can't be choosers. Gabriel, thank, thank you so you. much for coming on the show. Guys, make yeah. sure you spread the word. Thank you so much. And let's definitely keep in touch and we'll be here to help. Yes, of you. course. Thank you for having me, everyone. Sure. Bye. Very welcome. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Very nice young man. Very nice young man. Yes. You would like to donate? We should donate. Yes. Okay. So we are going to make a... Nice little contribution right now to Gabriel's campaign. And why? Because we are tipping you. Screw you, Act Blue. Yeah. Yeah. We really have to figure out a way around Act Blue. We really do. Uh, Not easy, but, you know, we'll do what we can. Uh, And of course, one of the things I would share, but I can't share it. That's the one thing when I'm the person who does the donating, but I don't have the link to the social media to share it. So we did. But so we just donated. If you are so inclined, go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can become a patron of our channel. And what are the things that happens when you become a patron? Well, like these non-corporate grassroots candidates that are running for office, we will make contributions to their campaigns. Those are the types of people that I think most can get behind. And why not? That person is not answering to corporate special interests. The person who would win on the red ticket would be answering Correct. corporate special interests. It's pretty cut and dry. Not that we have any love for either major political party. No, it's by individual. By individual. And in this case, the Democrat, hands down, no question, that's who you support. Yes. I support non-corporate candidates. So do I. I count. And as you guys know, we have a new featured category, small business sponsors. Remember, Apex Insurance Agency, home and auto, but also life insurance if you are so inclined. And they're in Delray. They are in my, they were, well, not my hometown, but my previous stopping grounds for seven years was Delray Beach. Great, small community. What, what do they call it? Village by the Sea, I think is what it's called. It's named the number one town in America twice in the past 30 years, which is pretty awesome if you ask me. It's a little homogeneous. 
Maybe so, but it's still a great town and still has a great small business, Apex Insurance Agency. And you do need that kind of insurance. You really do. You shouldn't have to have health insurance. No, and we would never be promoting anything that's that sort of like middleman thing. Not at all. No, but you need car insurance. You can't drive. You need to protect your home. Lord knows in this state, you better protect it. Home, auto, and life. Yeah. And if you're smart, if you do have a home, you better get locked in with as good a rate as you possibly can. One that hopefully lasts you for quite a long time because they're going to be renegotiating those rates that are not locked in over a lengthy period because Lord knows flood insurance and other things. Get yourself some good life insurance policy on your significant others too, people. You never know. Yeah, your house might be submerged in water and you're not going to know what to do. And your significant other could get dead and then you would really need to replicate that income. Yeah, you're getting pretty morbid. I'm just saying you need life insurance, not just house insurance. You need life insurance on people. And if you want to become a small business sponsor of our show. We will promote you. Every single show, only $50 a month. $50 a month. We'll promote every single show. And, you Mm -hmm. know, depending on the product. We'd come by and sample and do like, you know, I mean, obviously Apex Insurance does not sound like a fun, you know, outing, but like if you're a fish taco place or a food truck, we'd be like, we'd be on that. Mm. Appreciate that, Mario. And yes, let's be honest. There is no question that if you're going to go with any company, especially one that involves insurance, you want to go with a company that wants your business. Local. That isn't. Always local. Always local. Everything is Ours local. is, actually. Our insur- we've been with the same insurance agent, like the policy changes, but our people that we go through have been the same, like local place since we moved back here. Yeah, and that's really what you want. And so I think it would be... What are we watching? I think we, we would be doing ourselves a favor if we were very honest about this video that came out today on our governor. Which I just don't want to did a monetization. What are you going to put? No, it's, uh, it's no, it's, it's one of those where he was giving a speech and I think it's very important that we recognize what he is saying that is correct and what he is saying that is not correct. And so it's just a speech, and I think we can... Is this regarding the migrant situation? Uh, This is regarding a few different things. Okay, because I saw the speech he gave about um, the Martha's Vineyard stunt, and a lot of people have a lot of opinions on that. I generally find how we treat people in this country to be abhorrent on so many levels that this, to me, is just like, you know, if you're willing to put people in cages just for wanting to come here then like, why are people so shocked that this would happen? And yeah, you could call it human trafficking, but I don't really, that's, that's a stretch because that's not. But you see, when you talk like that, you completely, you know, you've jumped the shark. It's too hyperbolic, but, but what it is, it's just false pretenses, relocating people under false pretenses. And the fact of the matter is president Biden did it here in Florida. Governor Pritzker did it in Illinois. But because DeSantis did it, and he's not only on the other side, but he is the biggest threat to becoming the next president. That's the They're problem. going to treat this like it's the biggest crisis ever. It's happened plenty. Yeah. Actually, when I was growing up, what they used to do was they used to call it greyhound therapy. And when I was growing up, they, a lot of the northern places would send uh, their poor people, their homeless people on buses down to Florida for the winter. Because if you're going to be homeless, you are better off in Florida in the winter than say Detroit. Um, so yeah, it's relocating people. I, again, I don't refer to that as human trafficking in that capacity, but it's disgusting. And, um, 
But I think how we treat people all the time is disgusting. So to me, the, how Biden treats them is disgusting. How Obama treated them was disgusting. It's all disgusting. Again, I think we should be putting people up in like, you know, dormitories or, you know, like maybe, you know, unused military housing until people get on their feet. Like, why can't we welcome them? Why can't we welcome them with like a nice welcome basket? You know, like why we're can't that we, simple. We don't take you know care what? of our own people. It, it, but that's OK. But don't say it's not simple. It's incredibly simple. Be kind. Yeah, it's not kind complicated. Is not, but again, when things are not going well for an overwhelming majority of people, they're not going to care about a handful of migrants that their attitude is, well, my not. life sucks and I don't want to worry about people coming I in. I understand, here. which is why we have to keep people's life sucking and we have to keep kicking down you know our entire hospitality and leisure industry was going to end up um collapsing and we lifted it up and made sure that people were able to do that uh you also look at our labor force uh you know our labor force is growing uh much better than the country as a whole which is really really important and we did over seventy thousand private sector jobs in july uh that's one of the best numbers in the modern history of florida um and so we're doing all that with a lot of these headwinds that we're seeing from Washington with the Biden administration. You, know, you look when they came in and they started printing all this money, the cost of all this stuff really started shooting up. Groceries, energy, um, utilities, uh, home prices, rent, all these different things that have really, and not obviously throughout the whole country, but you know, we're not immune to that here in Florida. Uh, so you see that and the energy is, is uh, uh, I think intentional because they're really trying to make it hard to produce oil and gas here in the United States. And I think if you look what's going on in Europe, they're facing some really serious problems because of some of the choices they made with respect to energy, massive, massive spikes. Uh, and that could get very ugly uh, very, very quickly. So you know, in the United States, it's a national security issue. It's an economic security issue. We need to be able to produce our own energy. We need to make sure we have enough energy uh, to be able to run the economy and then make it so that people are able to afford it. That's okay, so basically what... So much to say. What President DeSantis is trying to tell you is we need to drill, baby, drill and continue exploiting the ability to extract fossil fuel energy from our own country rather than the Middle East. OK, so you don't want to take oil from the Middle East anymore. That's wonderful. You want to just take it from here. Yet we're not talking about the things that need to be done when it comes to actually changing the energy grid even though that technology is readily available and more of it can be produced and created without just having to drill, you know, and destroy people's lands and contaminate their water supply, man-made earthquakes, you know, all those little things that somehow always manage to be forgotten when dealing with this significant problem, at least as far as I can tell. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was sitting here thinking about burritos. Ooh, I like a burrito. I know. That's what I was sitting here thinking about ordering a burrito. I'm sorry. I got distracted. I was thinking about more important things than DeSantis. So you're not really paying attention to the segment at all? Not really, no so much. Sorry. Okay. So we'll continue and I'll just do it myself. <laughs> it's not what, what Biden has wanted to do. You know, he thinks that somehow you're not going to have oil and gas. It's just going to be windmills and solar. That's not going to happen. And like Florida, we've got a lot of solar and it's fine. It's a compliment, uh, but it is not a substitute uh, to be able uh, to run to run an economy. I think Europe is finding out with being so dependent on Russia for some of this. They're really at the mercy there. Uh, you see, I mean, some of these areas are just seeing massive spikes. 
that's devastating. And so, you know, we don't want to see that here. Unfortunately, I do think that you're going to see um, the, it looks like oil futures are going back up. You could end up seeing gas prices turn, turn back up over the next couple of months. I mean, there's a lot of people that are predicting that. Uh, so, so that's a huge problem. And that impacts everything that's going on with the economy. It's not just going to the gas pump and getting hit with higher gas prices. It impacts everything that people are buying and businesses and the whole nine yards. You look at how much food has gone up. Now, um, been huge spikes in, in prices for food. So uh, the bills at grocery stores, obviously restaurants have to deal with it too. So you see all that. And then what, what are they doing to try to mitigate that? Actually, I think they're putting fuel on the fire. Uh, if you look at this most recent legislation, Inflation Reduction Act, they're calling it, uh, they actually, they're actually imposing taxes on energy, on oil and gas. And so they're going to make it more expensive you know, when you tax something, it becomes more expensive. So they impose taxes on that, knowing that we're facing all these energy problems, which is a huge. Uh... Okay, that's a lie. Just because you tax something doesn't make it more expensive. That is a corporate talking point. That that's not how this works. That's not how this works. <laughs> So trying to make you believe that we can't tax anything, otherwise they're just going to screw you. That's how people have been convinced over the years that supply side economics is the answer. Just lower taxes for the rich and they will certainly allow it to trickle down to you. But as we've seen over 40 years, that is anything but the truth. And yet the potential commander in chief lying in wait is having you believe that that's how economics works. That if you tax big agriculture, they're going to just make food more expensive. So why tax them at all? The idea that mega corporations should pay no taxes proves that we don't have a president that is in control or a Congress that's in control. We have multinational corporations that have their corporate special interests control our government. Tell me how that's anything but that. Well, we have a completely non-functioning republic. I've been saying that for a long time. So that's because it was bought. We Literally, it was bought. All three branches have been sold. And so that's why nothing's happening. That's why we have uh, policies that don't reflect the will of the populace. There's a disconnect because the people in charge are not us. Damn right. <laughs> so I know it's not me. We'll continue huge no-no. Uh, they also uh, authorize 87,000 new IRS agents. Uh, and those IRS agents are going to be mobilized to go after people that the government doesn't like. Uh, this is not something where they're only going to be going after billionaires. In fact, billionaires all have accountants and lawyers. They're going to be going after people who are not going to be able to defend themselves against these audits. And, you know, they actually proposed an amendment when this was being debated in the U.S. Senate saying this should not, none of these agents can audit under $400,000 a year. And the Democrats voted that down. Uh, they did not want to protect Americans that are uh, making under $400,000. So your question is, is why would they not have wanted to do that? Because they want this to be something that is going after sole proprietors 
and handymen and people that own restaurants or people that drive an Uber. And so it's going to be those folks that are going to be least able to withstand an audit that they're going to go after because that's really the low hanging fruit. If you go after that, you're going to be able to to probably scrounge a lot of stuff. So that's not a good thing for for an economy uh, to be unleashing the IRS. And it's also the case that the tax code isn't even it's not it's incomprehensible. So if they go after you, a lot of times they're going to be able to find something. Uh, find if you, especially if you don't have an accountant or you don't have lawyers. Uh, so I thought it was really really reprehensible uh, that they'd be mobilizing eighty seven thousand. IRS agents. And I think every member of Congress that voted for that bill uh, should be required to be audited every year by the IRS. On that note, we I agree. I'm guessing you do too. We agree with Governor DeSantis. There is no need whatsoever for 87,000 IRS employees. He said agents, which is not true. So there's even a little lie in there as well, because why not lie even when you don't need to? We don't need 87,000 IRS employees. You want to talk about government waste of the worst kind? And he is absolutely correct, whether he gives a damn or not. Governor DeSantis is correct. You really think that the IRS, directed by our government elites, are going after corporate special interest leaders? No. They're going after regular people like you and I. That's who they're going to go after. They are under no circumstances going to be going after those. I agree, Guy, and I think it has to do with he's been having some significant weight fluctuations. Oh, yeah. No, he's put on a lot of weight. He's put on a lot of weight. So I think part of it is his suits have not caught up or maybe he doesn't want to spend too much money on on fat clothes if he's planning on losing a few. I don't know. That's how I do it. But I do agree with Keith Oberman on this, that he DeSantis's suits often do look ill-fitted. Yeah. He ain't getting good fashion I, advice. No. He's great at politics, though. He is. And on this particular issue, he is correct. And he really finished the topic on a very high note, which is if you're going to have all these IRS agents, have them IRS, have, have them audit Congress. Every one of them. You won't have much of a Congress left if they really did their job now, would they? Probably not. Well, wh- why? They apparently are allowed to do insider trading with abandon. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, as long as it's legal. Well, you know, it's- But it's like, not legal. That's that, not legal. Didn't President Nixon say in that, uh, what was it, Frost-Nixon interview, that when the president does, does it, it, it's e- not illegal? Legal, right. And unfortunately, that's a slip of the tongue because he's admitting that actually that's correct. The president does it, it's not illegal, and it's totally not illegal when I do it. All right. So, yeah, we'll give points to DeSantis on that one. then he's uh biden is saying he can unilaterally do this student loan uh just cancel well not really cancel taxpayers will pick up the tab you know for, for for student loans and first of all you can't do that unilaterally by executive action Yes, you can, no matter what you think and no matter what you hear, the president of the United States has certain executive authority, one of them being he can cancel student debt. He can also decriminalize all drugs. He can expunge all nonviolent drug offender records. He can end all wars. He can close all military bases. He can expand health care to everyone with a stroke of a pen. The president has the authority to do these things. And this is a man who is likely to be the next president, which is unfortunate. But he's saying things that are simply not true at all. 
Big lie. Bigly. Totally bigly lie. He bigly lied on that. But now that's just so standard. I feel like they that's the common denominator is they all lie. If you don't agree with student loan debt cancellation, that's fine. Then say that. Saying that the president can't do it, that's bullshit. We already went over this when it was uh, Nancy uh, Pinocchio-Losi. <laughs> the, pe- the president doesn't have the authority to We went all him. over that. We and discussed he, And in fact, I think he mentions that. So we'll continue. Uh, he does not have the authority to do that. Um, this is something that... Um, Hi, I'm Alex Schultz. Yep, that's me. A few years ago, my friend and I took a surf trip... Uh, A lot of people have said, even Pelosi said, couldn't be done, um, and yet he's going ahead and doing it. And so that's not consistent with the constitutional form of government. Uh, But you also look at what will the effects of this be, and you even have economists that work for Barack Obama saying, this is going to put gas on the inflation fire uh, because you're going to effectively be injecting uh, a, a lot more money um, you know, with already big money supply. So I think that that's something, it's certainly not going to reduce inflation and it very well may exacerbate. And they think it may end up being a trillion dollars uh, when all is said and done. You know, they've been doing trillions of dollars every every uh, every year, it seems like, just kind of keep doing it, hoping nothing goes wrong. Uh, but when you have inflation the way it is, you know, not the opportune time to do it. And the thing is, is like, okay, you know, you have people that have paid it off. So, so it's obviously not fair to them. You have other people that have made other choices because they didn't want to go deep into debt. And so maybe they pursued trades or other things uh, rather than do this. Uh, so then now they're going to be put with the bill. But it's also the fact that, you know, the colleges have and universities have benefited from all this debt. They raised tuition they expand their administrative, massive bloat in the bureaucracies and a lot of these universities. And like a lot of them have these big endowments. Why aren't they paying for the loans? They should be responsible for the loans because it was their recklessness. It wasn't the American taxpayer uh, that was reckless about it. And so what Biden's doing, he doesn't have the authority to do it. Uh, but if you're going to do something, no reform of higher education, no reform of any of this the way it's gone for the last generation, which has been a massive amount of waste uh, going into a system and putting a lot of debt on the backs of a lot of people. You know, in Florida, we don't permit that. So since I've been governor, there have been no tuition increases at our state university. We've frozen the tuition. And basically, you can go to University of Florida or Florida State it's like $6,000, $6,400 for in-state tuition. Not a lot of places around this country where you can get that, uh, where you can go for that type. Excellent point made by the governor. Can't deny that. Score to the governor. And what's even more amazing is that when I went to Rutgers living in New Jersey as an in-state student, that was how much tuition was back in the early 2000s, about 6500 a year. The fact that that's how much it costs a Florida resident to go to any of the major state universities, FAU, FIU, USF, UCF, UF, Jacksonville, uh, University of Jacksonville. Uh, no, Florida's Florida pretty state. decent about, about that. Higher education? Yeah. You got to get- And gun- tech schools, actually. Yeah. Give governor, you got to get, listen, like I said, everyone, if you're going after the governor, you must acknowledge what is done correctly because if you are elected governor, you would be either staying with that or improving upon it. Instead of just casting this net of you're terrible, yes, on social issues, DeSantis is not good. 
on economic issues like this, like higher education, this is good. Even if we don't have tuition-free public college, if you are going to school for a year, you can afford to pay $6,000. Anyone who, I, I did it. If you go to public college, you can have a part-time job. And that will absolutely- It's just, it's a doable so. situation. So- 100%. She's 45. Oh, and she me. came in in 16, so she, and she's with his little group. So she's basically a Trumpist. Trumpist. She's a Trumpite. That's Aaron Grawl standing. Yes, for anybody shoulder. who doesn't know, that's Aaron Grawl. Um, she. That is like my in my in the state house. She's my least favorite person in the state house. That's the woman who was put up the parental consent for abortion. Code hanger. Bill. Use yeah, a code, use a code hanger, ladies and gentlemen. I I can't with her. She's got three daughters, and I got to tell you, as mean as it is, as mean as it is, I hope that she has to deal with something like that where, you know, now you're seeing things where women who are having ectopic pregnancies are having to carry them until they get septic because the doctors won't have abortions. I, I have to tell you, karma would be that she or someone in her family has to deal with something pretty horrendous. But usually that's how it happens. And usually that's when the change I, I'm just so like, like, but hate every, everybody hates everybody else until it hits their doorstep. And that's how change comes. And that's on most, most circumstances. So we will continue. So we've just said it's got to be affordable. We're not going to just pump money in with, with more tuition, uh, run the institution in an effective way and deliver value for something so that students can go to school and not end up deep in debt. And so they can actually do something with their life rather than be smothered in this. And so I think that there's a whole host of reasons why it was very problematic, but I am proud of what we've been able to do in Florida to recognize that going deep into debt is not a good thing. And if you go $100,000 in debt, you end up with a master's degree in engineering from MIT, look, you're gonna be okay, you're gonna, you're gonna do fine. But what happens is you have these fourth tier universities that they charge as much as Harvard, and people go 100, 150,000 in debt because they're told it's just this piece of paper that's magic. And that's not true. And so that's why we've said it's got to be affordable. We're proud that our university system is ranked number one by U.S. News and World Report. We're proud that now, you know, University of Florida is now the fifth ranked public university in the country behind UCLA, Berkeley, Michigan and Virginia. The name Vegamore comes from vegan and amour. It's love. love for life, love for yourself. And I was used to used to be like 20th in the country for public. Now it's five. So that's a high that's quality for affordability. And I don't think anybody in the country has a better value proposition than we do. But at the same time, as much as we're proud of that, we've done a lot to expand workforce education because there's not there's a whole bunch of different pathways where you can be successful. You don't have to go to a four-year brick and ivy university. And so we've done a lot uh, to expand apprenticeships, to expand job training for things that are really, really important. And when you look at the supply chain, you need more people to drive trucks. You need people that can fix trucks. There's a whole host of things that you need. It also helps attract manufacturing when you see that a state is very committed to strong workforce. So we're gonna to continue to do that. I think it makes a lot of sense. And the Job Growth Grant Fund, which we're gonna uh, talk about today for here in Fort Pierce, that's one of the tools that we've used to be able to identify what the needs are in workforce, where we can make an impact, 
And so when we're expanding commercial driver's license slots, when we're expanding apprenticeships, when we're doing things, uh, a lot of times it's because we're looking to see around the state where we could get the most impact on. So we've done a lot on, on job training and workforce education. And I think that that's paid off. I think it'll continue to pay off. But we've also done a lot on infrastructure with our job growth uh, grant fund because there are certain things that if you can provide uh, an underlying support for infrastructure, then the uh, economy and all this stuff has an opportunity to really grow. And we've done that in various portions of the state. And we've had a lot of impact and businesses have moved and there's been expansion. And so we allow local communities to apply for these grants we kind of scrutinize them. They're ranked according to, to impact. And then we determine uh, in my office kind of what makes the most sense uh, to be able to get the most bang for our buck. And so here in Fort Pierce, So again, he really brings up a very good point, which is everyone in many cases is directed to go into higher education when in reality, it's much more long-term beneficial to learn a trade, to learn a skill. And hearing the one of the most, if not the most recognizable governor, or you know, two or three in the whole country, making a statement like that is important at a time when student debt is a huge crisis in our country. But it is true. Here's the problem that Governor DeSantis is not addressing. We do not have tuition-free public college or trade schools in the United States. So even if you want to apprentice and learn how to be a welder or an electrician or a plumber or, hell, even a bartender, bartenders, you know, I mean, you could do that, but it's not for everybody. There's a lot of different jobs that are out there, but you have to pay money in order to become these things. As far as I'm concerned, if you want to learn a trade, they should be paying you, you, you like. A well, again, and Guy, this goes to what he's saying, too, about like, why not get rid of tuition altogether? I agree. What, what we need is, is we need pre-K through 16 education. We need pre-K through 16 education. And the last four years are to be determined by the person. You know, you can do it in university. You can do it in trade school, get an apprenticeship, whatever. But it's paid for. And when you do those things and you actually invest in education, I think that that is one of those things that serves us all in the long term. But yeah, we need to just stop saying it's free college. Why do we have to call it that? You know, we didn't used to have K through 12. We didn't have primary school, right? We didn't have that. That wasn't something that we had. And now we're, we're thinking like that extra four years is just, oh, who, we can't have that. That's crazy. And it's so strange that people look at it that way. Why can't we just call it 16. If that'll make you feel better, we're just expanding because we think in the past couple hundred I, years, we, we think another four years might be worthwhile. And I got to tell you, it's amazing. With the exception of Bernie, really, with him, the exception of him, all the Democrats ever talk about is we need, we need tuition-free college. Whereas DeSantis and the GOP are much smarter about this when it comes to messaging. They focus on actual tangible things like learning a trade. And being able again, the, it, it's it is a it which is a speaks to the majority of people. Correct. It's the proverb oldest time: give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day; teach a man a fish, he'll eat for the rest of his life. And that basically is the thing that is being emphasized here. I believe that to that public college should be tuition free, but trade schools as well. You have to emphasize both, and it only seems like one is ever getting mentioned. But if you can only pick one of the two, 
you're going to pick the one that's likely to provide you with a career that you can have for as many years as you want. I'm telling you, pre-K through 16, mm-hmm. you do what you want with those last four years. We have varying options. Sure. That's what they do in places like Denmark. In places like, you know, some people, you, yeah, they do test people and some people qualify to go to university and some people don't, but it's free when you go. So, you know, but it's really offering different options for people based on what their aptitude is, which right. is the, it's the smarter thing to do. And you have an opportunity uh, with what's going on with some of this uh, uh, re- revitalization uh, that you're seeing. And so we're proud today to be able to award $2.7 million to the city uh, to redevelop the eight-acre King's Landing site in the city's downtown area. And that has an opportunity to do a lot. So this will help the city reconstruct aging utility infrastructure, reconstruct a portion of Indian River Drive, make pedestrian safety enhancements, and improve uh, the Morris Creek Bridge. So these public infrastructure improvements will help this area attract new businesses, including restaurants, retail stores, and even a full-service hotel. Uh, Additionally, by improving this infrastructure and addressing transportation needs, the project will support additional growth in nearby areas uh, like the Port of Fort Pierce and the Fisherman's Wharf Project. And so we're very bullish um, on St. Lucie County as a whole. Uh, We think Fort Pierce, um, you know, really is a great spot. And I think this is really going to help the area continue to blossom. So uh, we anticipate that this project alone We'll end up attracting about 1,300 jobs uh, to the area, and we'll have a fiscal impact of over $5 million. And of course, to the extent it's helping these other areas too, you know, that that fiscal impact is able to build. So it's an honor for me to be able to present uh, the mayor with the check. So where's she at? Go over here. Okay. All right. isn't it i think that might be her dish she's vero but i don't know if it goes south to fort pierce so as you can see i have a hate on for her yeah the reason why we put this video up is because we need people to understand why desantis is popular why it's very likely he's going to win again and you know people going to solve the problem (sighs) it can't be solved at the top that doesn't mean that you don't support whoever, Charlie Crist, Val Demings, whatever. It comes from the bottom with candidates like Gabriel Gonzalez. That's what the GOP understands. And that's what the Democrats, especially older liberals, don't understand. They keep wanting to do the same things over and over again. And what do you do when you do the same things over and over again and expect a different result? What's that called? Insanity. But that's the, you know, the fact that they're putting up somebody who was their ticket in 14 and then and then has already been governor as a Republican. It's this is the epitome of they've really run out of ideas. Like I think it about Hollywood. They can't come up with a new idea. They need to come up with a new idea. They're just recycling old people and old ideas. And it's just not motivating. It's just not motivating. And Val Demings is running to the right of Marco Rubio. I mean, it's like people. It's, they just cannot read the tea leaves. 
Yeah, and fortunately, I think a lot of times when you see top ticket candidates running on certain messages that make absolutely no sense, it makes you really wonder if a lot of what they're saying is just at the behest of the corporate donors that are telling them that this is what they want to hear. And that if you want to keep getting the money, that this is the only way it's going to happen. So, you know what, Scat, I would talk to Anna, but she probably would never come on here because we mocked her when she was nasty about Aaron Mate. Yeah, totally. So she, not she, she see, I called her a snowflake princess. Did you see uh, uh, his father, Gabor, on uh, yeah. Joe Rogan? He's just awesome. Wow. I think he has a new book. I think he has yeah, something new out. Um, but I actually have also given Anna props when Anna's deserve props. Like, you yeah. know, I, yeah, but she probably would never come on and talk to me. So we are not going to be live on Wednesday. We will be live on Thursday. And it's going to happen. Ryan Grimm versus Michael Schellenberger. This is climate week for us. Going to be discussing the future of clean energy and the role that nuclear power can play or not play. And we will also be speaking with, if you will indulge me for one second. Who are we speaking with? We are going to also be speaking with, after we speak with Ryan and Michael, we are going to be speaking with, the gentleman's name is Rich Nyman and Josh Vincent from Common Ground USA, and we will be discussing land value tax shifts. These are two. Well, that sounds sexy. Hey, I can't say it's going to be sexy, but it is important. Jesus, from nuclear to taxing we are that hot show people if steve grumbine is recommending that we speak to these two guys then we're going to have these two guys oh on the again show. we are an educational podcast but some things are more exciting than others well the debate will definitely get some butts in the seats and hopefully that will keep them here throughout the process i really hope it happens yes and i it is unfortunate that our audience size was not very big tonight but you know what we haven't been doing so well on monday I don't know if it's like a Monday thing or we like it's Monday night football. Is no, it? I think you might be right about that. You know what? That's there's two Monday night football games on right now. I just told and you I don't think that. it's just that, but I for some reason Monday I think is no, there I definitely other stuff no, I definitely stuff. agree that Wednesday is definitely the stronger tubers. of the two days. Uh, the question becomes, what would you want to switch it to? I don't, and that's the problem. So I don't. And remember, we're not doing, and we're I, not doing Sunday for football. That no, I, well, I didn't like doing Sundays either, but no, it is what it is. And we don't the do this is, for the live, but any other night is even more competition. Like Monday night for us in terms of the political arena is less competition than it was like we were doing Thursday Well, the night. only thing that I could think of is that, and you look at some of the other shows, some of them go on late. Like that may be it. I don't know. We should be asking people if okay, it's a question of time. But here's like the that. problem. Yeah. Is that I can't, I, I don't want to do that Jen's so late. Old. It's not that I'm old. It's not that I'm old. I could stay up really late. I just don't want to be up late with makeup on my face. I want to take off my makeup and put on my PJs. I'm up very late. Late is not the problem. It's late and looking like this. That is the problem. I want to like right now, all I want to do is go wash my face and put on pajamas. Well, on that note, we will see you Thursday because we're both have hungry. a burrito and football is still on. So I got to go check that out. Fantasy football going pretty well this year so far. I, f- I gotta say. feel like you're like show commando. Giants and the Cowboys on Monday Night Football next week. So you better believe I am going to make every effort possible to make sure that we have a slightly earlier show because that game's important. Well, it's all about you. The game starts at 8.30, so I guess we'll have to come on at like 7.30 or something like that. I don't know what I'm willing to do. We'll negotiate because I feel like you're being like show commando lately. And I feel like I'm not like Jen playing needs anymore. More say. I apologize. I, it's not good. All right. I'm like like, you know, in indentured servitude. 
Talk about first free world, gen. Talk about first world problems. Free, free gen. Save see gen. You, see you Thursday. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.